Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Diffusion Science Radio, the science show that brings you cutting-edge science like large oil tankers bring oil to the New Zealand coast. My name is Mark West and please excuse my cough, but I'm excited. I'm excited because it's Subscriber Drive this week here on 2SCR. So if you like your science brought to you by people that actually have science degrees and like their philosophies grounded in evidence, give us a call. Joining me in the studios this week are Ian Wolfe on the panel, Victoria Bond, sorry, Dr. Victoria Bond, Patrick Ruby, sorry, Dr. Patrick Ruby, and Julianne Popple, sorry, Dr. Julianne Popple. You're making my master's degree looking pretty uh, outdated, actually. So to start with, we've got our own typhoid Mary, Victoria Bond, and she's going to tell us a little bit about some new malarial work into uh, a new malaria vaccine. Victoria. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to have you back in the studio. And uh, you may notice that I'm Mark's husky-voiced compadre here. Uh, I am doing some pre-training at the Children's Hospital, and I've been calling children snot factories about all week. I thought it was hilarious until, of course, they got me sick. So I'll be coughing along. Um, we're talking this week about malaria and a story that I heard over the National Public Radio, which also does great science radio shows, as I'm sure you're aware. Malaria is actually a disease which is caused by a parasite and transmitted by the mosquito. And what it does is it infects your red blood cells, and it can make you very, very sick because when it replicates, it destroys your red blood cells and essentially makes you quite anemic. It kills about 800,000 people per year, and most of these people are children under five, and most of these people live in sub-Saharan Africa. So in the past 10 years, there's been this mammoth study over a half billion dollars has been poured in, about half from the Gates Foundation and the other half from Glasgow's Smith Klein. And what they've done is they've looked at 6,000 children ranging between the ages of 5 and 17 months old and scattered around 11 different sites in sub-Saharan Africa. Essentially what they did is they gave half of the children control vaccines and the other half an experimental anti-parasitic vaccine. This vaccine is the first to target a parasite, which makes it very, very, very exciting. So the results were that it worked to a certain degree. It doesn't work as well as, say, the vaccines that we're accustomed to in the Western world, like mumps and measles, which have over 90%. This vaccine slashed mortality and malarial episodes by about 50%. And that's massive when you consider the effect that malaria has around the world. So per 1,000 children who received the control vaccine, there were about 1,500 cases of malaria per child per year. So if you do the math, which I'm not going to do. That is more than one episode per year per child. Oh, And per 1,000 children who received the experimental vaccine, there were only 750 cases of malaria. Now, to put that in perspective, per 1,000 people infected with malaria, without the vaccine, about 40 of them died. So those are that's the mortality rate of malaria. And of those that received the vaccine, it was half of that number, so only 20 per 1,000. So it's, it's a very, very exciting development, I think, um, especially because it's been so long in the coming. There's not a lot of um, profit to be had in pharmaceutical companies promoting these malarial vaccines because it's essentially 
disease of the developing world. And you may or may not remember that there was malaria in the States in the 1950s. But what they did is they used DDT and they just decimated the mosquito population. Um, but unfortunately, there are environmental ramifications, as we know from Silent Spring, and there's also um, DDT resistance in mosquitoes these days. So that, that won't work anymore, and this is a completely new tact to attacking this disease. So malaria, you basically have to have a malarial uh, injection when you go overseas at the moment. What is it that they give you now? or What do, what do they do when you go to Africa or well, it's not an injection. They actually give you something called prophylaxis. And oftentimes they'll give you a drug called doxycycline. Ah, that's what I've had, yeah. Exactly. And it's it's not a very nice drug to have, except if you have acne. It clears up your acne beautifully, as I discovered when I was living in Tanzania. But um, it, it's not that effective. Doxycycline sixty prevents 60 to 70% of malarial cases. The best thing you can do if you're traveling is to just not get bit in the first place. So use your mosquito nets and use your... Um, what is it called here? Detol? It's not Detol. The the anti mosquito. Yeah, it smells that stuff. That one, yeah, yeah the yeah, citronelle yeah. thingy. Yeah, yeah. I'm a great doctor. Well, do- <laughs> well doxy doxycycline is a bit of a problem because you can't go out in the sun as well, can you? That's right. It makes you photosensitive, and there's also it can um, damage your esophagus. Right, which is a small problem when you're going to Africa. There's a bit of sun over there. Yeah, there's there's a bit of sun, and generally people who you know have to take anti malarial prophylaxis tend to be quite fair skinned. So. Okay. Oh, well, thanks, Victoria, for that. That's very interesting. If it weren't for the birds, remember my pet, the balance of nature would be upset. The insects of the world would surely double and the people of the world would be in trouble. would multiply and without the algae the fish would die the flowers and the fruit need pollination and the balance of nature consideration trees are chopped down, we have floods and soil erosion and a reduced water supply. If too many plants are destroyed, the animals may not have enough food and oxygen. If too many animals are killed, the minerals and carbon dioxide that animals supply to plants will be diminished. The balance of nature must not be unbalanced. 
nature is ever unbalanced Whatever will happen will not be good During the week, Julianne interviewed Dr Min Chen about her award-winning discovery of a new type of chlorophyll, chlorophyll F. Now, this was news to me because I actually thought there was one type of chlorophyll, but apparently it goes chlorophyll A through F but no E, which is uh, apparently some form of controversy or something to talk about at a later date. I don't know. That sounds really interesting. Anyway, here is Julianne talking to Dr. Min Chen about chlorophyll F. There are several different types of chlorophyll that differ in terms of the type of light that they absorb. Chlorophyll A and B are found in green plants and algae and absorb light predominantly in the violet blue and orange red parts of the visible spectrum. But it isn't just plants that possess chlorophyll. Dr. Min Chen has spent several years studying chlorophylls produced by strange single-celled organisms called cyanobacteria. But just what are cyanobacteria? The cyanobacteria, the cyano means blue-green color. Bacteria is the bacteria. So that is the blue-green color of the bacteria. Um, more general, the cyanobacteria is the only bacteria produce oxygen doing the we call the oxygenic photosynthesis. That means the photosynthesis can use the water produce oxygen. So cyanobacteria is the only bacteria that can carry this reaction. Cyanobacteria produce chlorophyll D, a type of chlorophyll that absorbs non-visible light towards the far red end of the spectrum. The story of the chlorophyll D actually is interesting. The chlorophyll D first report, the chlorophyll D molecule is 1943. The paper published in the biochemistry, they claim they isolate a new chlorophyll that named the chlorophyll D. But people start to repeat their experiment, and then they got unstable results. And then in the, I think in the late 50s, the organic chemists, they can make the chlorophyll D from chlorophyll A in the lab. And then they got a kind of general conclusion of the chlorophyll D. And then in the 1996, uh, Japanese scientist led by um, Miyashita, he found a new cyanobacteria that have over 95% of the chlorophyll is chlorophyll D. So they definitely turned the story of the chlorophyll D into a new page. Min Chen and her colleagues also found chlorophyll D containing cyanobacteria, bizarrely living underneath sea squirts. We found that the chlorophyll D container um, organism in the Great Barrier Reef. Actually, they are underneath of some animal body, just. Uh, between the animal and uh, the coral rocks. So there is uh, somewhere the light is really limit because when the light goes through the acidian body, they filter out the UV light and uh, they filter out the visible light because the prochron use chlorophyll A and the B so they absorb all the other part of the light. So the light uh, goes through then is reached to where the chlorophyll D organism living actually you get 
almost no visible light but far red light. It's the chlorophyll D that allows the cyanobacteria to make use of that remaining non-visible light and survive in the most unlikely of places. In the search for more chlorophyll-containing cyanobacteria, Min Chen and her colleagues decided to look at stromatolites in Shark Bay, Western Australia. Stromatolites have the layer of this microbiomat, so they might have some kind of really special light environment. And that is where I should find some chlorophyll D there. They found more than what they were looking for. We do get this chlorophyll D. Actually, we, I definitely I reached my goal. I got this new chlorophyll D container string isolated from stromatoli. But during the pigment analysis, actually, we noticed something is really new. The pigment, the spectra, is different from chlorophyll D. In fact, they had discovered the first new chlorophyll in 67 years, chlorophyll F. This pigment is new chlorophyll in this century. But the most interesting, actually, is they have very red shift absorbent spectra even red compared to chlorophyll D. And I know the people always interesting for the red shifted uh, pigments because they are just beyond or at uh, the red edge of your visible light region. So that is really the difficult light region to work with. This discovery could ultimately benefit the agricultural industry as it may be possible in the future to develop transgenic plants that can use both visible and non-visible light. Photosynthesis, if they only use visible light, is 400 nanometer to 700 nanometer. And then that is about 40 percent. And then if we have chlorophyll D there, that means they can use the light is 400 to 750. So you have this about a 50 nanometer extender from the 700. Actually, basic on the energy calculation, that part of energy, 700 to 750, is about 14 percent of the this solar energy input. And then if you think if you have the chlorophyll F there, they can extend even beyond the 760. So that probably they can increase about 19 percent. Perhaps one day we'll have transgenic plants with the full alphabet of chlorophylls and that can use light more efficiently. That was Julianne speaking to Dr. Min Chen about chlorophyll L. She recently received the Science Minister's Prize for Life Scientist of the Year for this discovery of chlorophyll L. Next up, we have the latest scientific news with Ian Wolfe and Patrick Ruby. How do parrots get their names? Ars Technica reports that all wild parrots have a unique call that identifies them and acts like a name. Young green-rumped parrotlets in the study picked up their names from their parents. Their parents don't literally name them. Instead, the youngsters develop their unique contact calls by taking elements of things they hear from both of their parents and merge them into something new. To show that this isn't some form of genetic recombination, the researchers tracked nests with foster chicks and found that the foster chicks' calls were created from a mixture of sounds from both of the parents 
that raise them. Dumb behaviour in teenagers might not be due to hormones after all. In an article from ABC Science, researchers from University College London believe that IQ might be more closely related to changes in brain structure than variations in hormones. The scientists started a study in 2004. They tested 33 adolescents between the ages of 12 and 16, looking at verbal IQ, such as language skills, arithmetic and memory, and non-verbal IQ, such as puzzle solving. As well as doing IQ tests, the participants each had an MRI scan of their brains. A follow-up set of IQ tests was done for each participant in 2007 to 2008, along with follow-up MRIs. For some teenagers, their IQ in specific areas increased during this period, and for some it decreased. The changes in IQ correlated with changes in their MRI scan, For example, a subject with an increase in verbal IQ score over the three to four year gap had a corresponding increase in density of grey matter in the left side of the brain, in an area that helps to process speech. The ability of the structure of the brain to change, better known as the plasticity of the brain, has been demonstrated in many previous studies, but there's been little research so far on whether our IQ can also change, and if so, what causes it. The researchers from University College London believe their findings might help change how we teach children and adolescents in school. Poorer performers might still improve despite their hormones. The research has been published in the Journal of Nature. You may not remember a face, but your brain does. Your brain does all sorts of things without bothering to let your conscious self know about them. This is shown nicely by a patient that suffered a brain injury that left them with prosopagnosia, or the inability to remember a face. It turns out that parts of their brain do successfully recall familiar faces and light up when the patient is undergoing functional MRI. There's also measurable electrophysiological response. The only thing that's lacking in this patient is any conscious awareness of this. And after such a hot day today, we have an article about temperature targets. Temperature targets in trouble, as taken from ABC Science. In 2009, the G8 and international community agreed to a target of no more than two degrees average temperature rise globally above pre-industrial levels by 2020. Now, a team of scientists from the Institute for Atmospheric and Climate Sciences have analysed carbon emission scenarios in an effort to see how achievable these temperature targets are. They assess the technical and economic feasibility of 193 different emission pathways listed in scientific literature. They then analysed how likely these predicted pathways were to reaching international community targets, dividing the scenarios into very likely, likely, and 50-50. The research shows that current international pledges to reduce CO2 will not be sufficient to reach the two degree temperature target. Global emissions will need to peak and then fall to 54 gigatons of CO2 equivalent within the next 10 years in order to reach the target. Current levels are about 48 gigatons and they continue to rise. The analysis was published in Nature Climate Science. Why is it hot in the summer? Why is it cold in the winter? 
Why do we have the seasons? What can the reason be? The days in the summer, the days are much longer, the rays are much stronger, and shine more directly down on the earth. What rays? The sun's rays. Why is it hot in the summer? Why is it cold in the winter? Why do we have the seasons? What can the reason be? The days in the winter, the days are much shorter, the rays are more slanted, and shine less directly down on the earth. What rays? The sun's rays. In the summer, the days are much longer, the rays are much stronger, and shine more directly down on the earth. The days in the winter, the days in the winter, the days are much shorter, the days are much shorter, the rays are more slanted, the rays are more slanted, and shine less directly down on the earth. What rays? The sun's rays. Want to eat less? Try a bigger fork, but only if you're eating out. Researchers went to a local Italian restaurant and changed the size of the forks, making them a fifth bigger or smaller. Big forks meant less food, and a typical small fork eater left behind 100 grams less than people who were eating with big forks. The authors of the paper think that when you're dining out, you're motivated to eat a lot of the food, so they use the smaller forks more often and end up eating more. To test whether it really was the cost of the meal that mattered, they gave people free meals in the lab and found that small forks meant less food was eaten, which which reversed the restaurant results. And my last particular news item for today is not so much a news item as an interesting opinion piece, as some expressed in New Scientist. This month, Denmark has introduced a fat tax on foods containing at least 2.3% fat. These sort of foods include margarine, cooking oils, animal fats, dairy products, except for milk, of course. Um, The tax itself is about 16 kroner per kilogram of saturated fat. Now, if you convert that to um, American currency, as was done in the article that I was reading, that roughly equates to 12 cents, US cents, for a bag of potato chips or crisps, 40 cents um, increase to the price of a burger. Now, several critics around the world have commented that this could work in Denmark because there's less of an income gap between the rich and the poor. But in countries with a wider gap and with less access to healthier food in poorer areas, this might just actually place an extra burden on poorer people, um, which is not what the tax had intended. Similar measures have been done in other parts of Europe. Hungary, for example, had put taxes on sweets and salty snacks. Romania and Iceland had introduced taxes previously on unhealthy foods or fatty foods, but have subsequently dropped them. And Finland, Ireland and even the UK are now considering them. Denmark itself is not a particularly bad offender in terms of obesity. 13.4% of the population on average is obese. That's well below the European average of 15%. In Australia, if you go by the 2007-2008 government statistics, 
25.6% of adult men were obese and 24% of women. Now, do you think that this sort of tax would be welcome in Australia? I'm not so sure. Snails colonise new lands by getting eaten. Japanese researchers fed snails to a couple of species of birds and found that about 15% survived the trip through the digestive tract. One even gave birth to young shortly after emerging on the other side. With that knowledge to hand, the researchers then looked at the DNA of the snails in the wild and found evidence for genetic mixing at distances the snails are overwhelmingly unlikely to travel without assistance. So it appears that being eaten helps these snails maintain a diverse population structure. Thanks, Ian and Patrick, for that news. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week's edition of Diffusion Science Radio here on 2SCR 107.3 across Sydney, across Australia on the Community Radio Network and across the world on the podcast at www.diffusionradio.com. This week's show was panelled and produced by Ian Wolfe and the other voices you heard were Victoria Bond, Patrick Ruby and Julianne Popple, all recent recipients of medical degrees. My name is Mark West. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week on Diffusion Science Radio, and we're going to go out to a little bit of Tom Gleisner and Dottie Evans singing It's a Scientific Fact. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed, because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact.